Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us, that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Yom Kippur, celebrated or observed, might be a better word on this evening, occurs once a year. It's a holy day because of its uniquenesses. When the temple stood, it was the one and only day in which the one and only high priest entered into the, entered into the Holy of Holies once a year to sprinkle the blood of the sacrificial offering on the mercy seat, which was in the Holy of Holies, over which the smoke of God's glory had been present. And that was to make atonement for the holy place and for the temple and all the rudiments that were used in the sacrificial system in when the temple was up and when the temple was active and the Levitical priesthood was functioning. There was another offering that was presented. A ram was put before, or a goat was brought before the high priest, and he would place his hands on the, high, on the goat, and he would confess the sins of the Jewish people. And then that goat would have been led out outside the temple into the wilderness where it would die, and it would be the scapegoat carrying, as it were, the sins of the people. What's so interesting about all of these things, and there are a variety of interesting things, but one of the things that is very consistent with what God's plan and purposes is, is to provide atonement on two levels. One is there is a subjective aspect, and the other there's an objective aspect. So I remember years ago when I was in New England and I was a student there that there were occasions I'd go on to Tufts University and I would mingle with the students and talk with them and share with them about Yeshua being the Messiah. And on one occasion, one of the fellows came down from the rabbi of Hillel's office and had told me the rabbi wanted to see me. So I went up to the office of the rabbi, and the rabbi and I sat down, and he asked me, he said, what is it that you find superior to, his words, Christianity, I would say faith in Yeshua as the Messiah, but he said, what is it about Christianity that you find superior to Judaism? Now, this was about the time that we were observing Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, and so I've been thinking about the atonement. And what I said to the rabbi as I sat down with him, I said, well, there are two issues that are of concern to me when I read the Bible. One is that there is a subjective aspect to the atonement. That is, we have to respond appropriately to the atonement that is provided. When the offerings were offered on the altar, it wasn't enough that the sacrifice was there. Individuals need to approach that sacrifice with an open heart and a receptive heart. 
They were to repent of their sins. And this is a night when Jewish people are to be repenting of their sins. That's a subjective act where you agree with God that such and such a thing is sinful and you desire to turn from it. That's the fuller scope of what repentance is about. That's a subjective aspect. But it's not enough just to merely acknowledge that moment that we went astray. It's also important that we recognize that this has to become a life-transforming event. And so there has to be a sense in which we go on from that moment of repentance to where we are worshiping God and we are to be worshipers of him. That's a subjective response to what God has done. It's something we do. We worship him just as we repent of our sins. And so it's important that we experience what the rabbis would refer to as tshuva, which is to return, to turn, to repent. That we would be involved with what is called tefillah, prayer, which is really worship in its fullest sense. And that we would also be committed, a third thing, to tzedakah. Now, when I was a young boy growing up and I'd be in Hebrew school, we always had a tzedakah box. Anybody else have tzedakah boxes? Right, so you guys know what I'm talking about. The rest of you are saying, I don't know what you're talking about. It's a little box, (laughs) tin box with a slit on top and you put your coins in. And as you saved up, you would bring them back to the synagogue or you'd send it off to Israel to plant trees and all kinds of things. But a tzedakah box was like, you know, donations. But the word tzedakah comes from the word righteous. And so tzedakah was really an act of righteousness whereby we helped others that had less than what we had. And so we're to respond to the atonement God provides with righteousness, good deeds, tzedakah. And so those are subjective responses. So there are these, so so there's these subjective responses to God's atonement, which is worship, which is tefillah or prayer, tzedakah, good deeds, or teshuva, repentance. So I said to the rabbi, I have no problem with those three aspects that Judaism has now put before the people in replace of the sacrifice on the altar. That's what Jewish people are being told tonight and tomorrow when they gather in their synagogues. The way to experience atonement for sin is by repentance, worship, and good deeds. And I have no problem with those three things in and of themselves because the scripture tells us we are to be worshipers of God. Scripture tells us if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Indeed, we are to do good deeds. But those in and of themselves are not enough to provide us with atonement and redemption from sin. And the Bible is clear. Not only ought there to be those subjective aspects, which I just described, but there has to be an objective aspect, that which we place our faith in, and that's what the blood on the altar was meant to be. So I said to the rabbi, the thing that I find problematic with Judaism, rabbinic Judaism of today, is it holds on to the subjective aspect of the atonement. It lacks an objective aspect. It has the things we're supposed to do, but if it's left up unto ourselves, we can never do it fully or completely, and thereby we could never gain God's favor and experience the atonement he has for us. There must be something objective outside of ourselves that saves us, and that's where Yeshua comes in. 
Because he's the final atonement. He's the final objective aspect to God's plan of atonement for our sin. But the rabbis knew this. And I want to show you some things when you get to Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. What makes that passage so important, especially on this night, is that it's a passage about the atonement that God would provide for his people and the nations of the world. So first of all, it is common to hear the rabbis say, that when we look at Isaiah 52, 53, that this is a passage about Israel. So I ask you to turn with me to that passage. So let me read it for you very quickly. Uh, in your Bibles, under your chairs, if you don't have one, you can find it there. I don't know what page it's on. If someone would look it up and just yell out page, whatever. What, what was it? 613? 613. And how many commandments are there in the Mosaic Law? 613. And what is the address here? 613. No, it's 6115. But 613. All right, so let me read these passages for you. Now think about this. You know, one time, years ago, when I was in New Jersey, which is where I'm from, and we had ministry among the Jewish people, we had our Friday night service, and we had some people that came in that took issue with the idea that Jewish people can believe in Messiah, or Yeshua was the Messiah. And we argued a bit, and then I gave them a Bible. I asked them to read Isaiah 53. After they read it, they said, what's the big deal? And I said, I don't know. What's the big deal? And they said, well, this is about Jesus. So what? And I said, really? You think that passage is about Jesus? And they said, yeah, who else could it be? I said, but that's the Hebrew Scriptures. That's not in the New Testament. That's in the Old Testament. And that was a Jewish Bible I gave you. They looked at it, Jewish Publication Society, 1960-something or whatever. And they said, you tricked me. <laughs> and I, I said, well, well, what if I had? <laughs> you know? I mean, it's still there, and you still saw it the way it is. So now, if you take a look at this passage, I don't know how anyone else could, how anyone could think otherwise. But in verse 13, it says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. 
Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He will divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So when you read these passages, it is so obviously everyone sees this must be about Yeshua. Who else could it be speaking about? But it's common today to hear the rabbis tell us that this passage is not about the Messiah suffering in behalf of the sins of the people of Israel and the world, but rather it is a passage about how Israel would suffer at the hands of the nations. There are problems with that that interpretation, but one of the most significant problems is that that just simply has not been the Jewish view of Isaiah 52 and 53 over the centuries, even in some circles to the present. In fact, the very first rabbi to suggest that Isaiah 53 was about Israel suffering at the hands of the Jewish people was a man by the name of Rabbi Shlomo ben Yitzchaki Rashi, who is a great rabbinic scholar, one that many Christian thinkers in his own day and today still look to for understanding and insight into what the scriptures teach. He lived around the time of the Crusades, and the Crusades was not a good time for the Jewish people. It was a time when the crusaders would march into a Jewish community. They would haul the Jewish people out into their synagogues. And a priest would stand up and preach to them a conversion-oriented type of sermon, attempting to force the Jewish people to turn to Jesus. As a result, there had to be a response to the way that the priests were utilizing Isaiah 52 and 53 to speak about the Messiah. Rashi was the first one to suggest that the priests had interpreted the passages wrongly, that this was not about Messiah, but it was about Israel's suffering at the hands of her enemies, like we are experiencing right now as this priest is preaching forcibly upon us his view of what the scriptures hold. He really came to this view not because he was being objective about what the text had taught, but rather he was attempting to Um, respond to what was going on in the Jewish community at that time. But what he had done, although intended to defend his people, actually was in contradiction to what the Jewish people had been teaching about this passage for centuries already. So the earliest rabbis, all with really one voice, understood Isaiah 52, 53, to be about the Messiah. Now, the things I want to show you is right out of a text I have in my library. It's a book about this thick that's, in, that's entitled All the Interpretations of Isaiah 53 According to the Jewish Rabbis. So these are where these passages are coming from. It's not like I have abilities you do not have. I just have books you don't have. And so here's some of the things that we read. Now, a targum, by the way, is an Aramaic paraphrase. You remember... I guess it's still around, the Living Bible, you know? That's a paraphrase. It's not a translation. It's to be a readable text in the Bible. Well, after the Babylonian captivity, 
Jewish people spoke Aramaic, which was the common language of the Babylonians. And in common discourse, Hebrew was no longer really spoken generally. Rather, it was reserved for the synagogue. And as time went on, and once the Greeks came into play, now Greek became the common language, and Hebrew became less a commonly used language, except for in the synagogue. And even today, apart from what's going on in Israel, and since Israel's become a state, and since the Hebrew language has been resurrected, as it were, in the early part of the 20th century, Hebrew was relegated to the synagogue. And for the most part, Jewish people were speaking all the languages in all the countries they would disperse, myself included. I mean, I speak English. Why? Because I happen to be in an English-speaking country. But if we were in Israel, we would be speaking today Hebrew as our common language among our people. A targum was an Aramaic translation that was so translated, or a paraphrased translation, because that's what most of the people understood. This goes back to about the second century A.D. or after Messiah. And in the, his translation, ben, uh, Jonathan ben Uzziel, when he translated this passage, he said, Behold, my servant, not just my servant shall prosper, as it reads in the Hebrew text, but he paraphrased it, Behold, my servant, the Messiah, shall prosper. It's one of the earliest statements we have on this passage, indicating that it was understood to be about the Messiah. One of my favorite rabbis that I did some study on was Rabbi Don Yitzchak Abarbanel. He had accepted Rashi's translation or interpretation of this passage. He believed it was about Israel. But in his discussions and in his commentaries, he's at least honest enough to explain that the earliest rabbis did not believe that. And so he wrote, the first question as to ascertain to whom this passage refers. Why? Because the learned among the Nazarenes, that is, Jews that believe in Yeshua as the Messiah, we were referred to as Nazarenes, among other things. And he says, for the learned among the Nazarenes expounded of the man who was crucified in Jerusalem at the end of the second temple, and who according to them was the Son of God, and took flesh in the virgin's tomb, womb, as is stated in their writings. But Jonathan ben Uzziel interprets it in the Targum of the future Messiah. And this is also the opinion of our own learned men and the majority of their midrashim. Midrashim were like homilies and commentaries and sermons of an earlier era. He's saying that while it is true that the believers in Yeshua applied it to him, we're waiting for a future Messiah. But let's be clear, it's not about Israel, it's about Messiah. And so he too admits this. In the Talmud, it says the Messiah, what is his name? Those of the house of Rabbi Yudah the saint said, the sick one, as it is said, surely he has borne our sicknesses in Isaiah 53, verse 4. It's also interesting, in another Midrashim, Rabbi Nachman says, the word man in the passage refers to the Messiah, the son of David. Behold the man whose name is Tzemach, or the branch. And look where Jonathan ben Uzziel interprets, behold the man, Messiah, a man of pains and known to sickness. Isaiah 53, verse 3. In other words, they're telling us in their unique way of interpreting the scriptures that Isaiah 52 and 53 was about the Messiah. In the prayer book for the Day of Atonement, on this evening as we gather together, there's an interesting prayer found in it, which says, Messiah, our righteousness is departed from us. 
Horror has seized us and we've none to justify us. He has borne the yoke of our iniquities and our transgression and is wounded because of our transgression. He bears our sins on his shoulders that he may find pardon for our iniquities. We shall be healed by his wound at the time that the eternal will create him. The Messiah as a new creature will bring him from the circle of the earth. Raise him up from Seir to assemble us on the second time on Mount Lebanon by the hand of Yenon. And this he's quoting from Isaiah 53 and 55. Now there are things here we wouldn't agree with, but I do want to go back. Check this out. Look, he says, Messiah, our righteousness. Wow. I mean, isn't that what Paul writes? The Lord, our righteousness. And this is how the prayer book that was uh, put together in the seventh century spoke of Messiah. He's our righteousness. He's our means of righteousness. The rabbis had acknowledged that. Notice this. He says he's departed from us. Well, when was he ever among us? When was he ever here that he was able to depart from us? I mean, it's really an interesting phrase because as I think about it, he departed from us because of our rejection of him back in the first century. So in order for him to depart, he had to arrive at some point. And he says, look, he's departed. And look at this. We have none to justify us. We can't stand righteous before God by our own effort. Effort. We need someone to justify us, to declare us righteous before him. The rabbis are saying this. We're not looking anywhere in the scripture, right? This is what they're telling us. And look what he also says. He has borne our iniquities and our transgressions. He was wounded because of our transgressions. Here's the suffering of the Messiah in our behalf and because of our sin. You know, in Isaiah 53, it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We thought he was stricken and smitten of God and afflicted, Isaiah writes. We thought he was suffering for his own sin, but lo and behold, no, he was suffering because of our transgression. And look at this. He bears our sin on his shoulders. Does that not sound like Isaac when he was told to carry the wood for the offering in Genesis chapter 22? He bore our sin. He carried our sin. He was heavy laden by our sin. This was not an easy thing the Messiah would do. This was a burdensome thing that he would do. And the new covenant scriptures reveal just how burdensome, how painful, and how agonizing it was for Messiah to bear our sin. Here's another one for the 11th century. Forthwith, the Messiah accepted the chastisement of love. As it is written, he was oppressed and he was inflicted. And when Israel is sinful, the Messiah seeks for mercy upon them. As it is written, by his stripes, we are healed. And he carried the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That's just a few, uh, quote from three verses from Isaiah 53. We can go on and on. Here's one from 1575, who's wounded for our transgressions. The meaning of which is that since the Messiah bears our iniquities, which produces the effect of his being bruised, it follows that whoever will not admit that the Messiah suffers for our iniquities must endure and suffer for them himself. I mean, I don't All you have to do is read this. And these men are being honest. They're not identifying Yeshua as the Messiah, but they're certainly identifying what the Messiah must do, which the, new cov- the Jewish writers of the New Covenant are telling us Yeshua did that for us. If only someone perhaps had been able to share that with them in a more positive environment. This was a tough time for Jewish people, the Reformation era. So 
And there are many more that we could take a look at. But let me just share very briefly, because time is afoot and I, we don't want to spend all evening here. But in Isaiah 53 and 52, it is just an amazing passage. Just take a look at these verses with me, uh, just very quickly, in sort of an outlined form. First of all, we read of the exaltation. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He will be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. You know, there's so many things right here in this verse. This phrase, my servant, it comes up four times, three times preceding this that is used of the Messiah. You'll see it in Isaiah chapter 42. You'll see it in Isaiah chapter 49. You'll see it in chapter 50. The servant here is not merely Israel. It is the Messiah of Israel that Isaiah is speaking of. But look at this. He tells us that he would be high, lifted up, and exalted. I think it's interesting, these triadic phrases that are attached to the Messiah or to the Lord. You know, we say the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You know, three times there's this reference to God in the Shema with the word Echad. We call him the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Three phrases for God. And look at this, as Messiah is told, it doesn't say the Messiah would be exalted. It says the Messiah would be exalted, he would be high, and he would be lifted up. When you think of what Messiah Yeshua went through, he was resurrected, he was exalted, and he was glorified. He was resurrected, he ascended, and he was exalted at the right hand of the Father. Is it possible that Isaiah is thinking about this threefold event of Yeshua's exaltation reflected in these three phrases? What's also interesting here is, this is these are the same phrases used of God in Isaiah chapter 6, where it says that Isaiah was caught up into the very throne room of God, and he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the very same words to describe this individual, the same words that are used to describe the Lord. This is not just any old individual. This is the Messiah who is uniquely exalted and stands alone above all others. And notice this, but at the same time that he's high, lifted up, exalted with the same phrase of God, look at verse 14, but many were astonished at his appearance because he was so marred beyond human semblance. How does he get described as being high, lifted up, and exalted as God is? And then the very next phrase, it says that he's marred more than human beings are marred. Why the comparison to God in his exaltation and then humanity in his lowliness? That's the uniqueness of the Messiah of Israel, because just as the rabbis were saying, this is the Savior who would suffer in our behalf. And his suffering would be such that he would be compared to the humiliation of human beings. But look at verse 15. And yet somehow, through that that, uh, humiliation, he's able to sprinkle many nations. This is a Levitical phrase. To sprinkle means to provide atonement for Just like you would sprinkle the blood on the altar or on the mercy seat. So now all of a sudden, this one that's exalted like God is marred like human beings. And then he's acting like a priest in sprinkling and bringing salvation and bringing atonement. Not just to Israel, but to many nations. So you can't help but think of Abraham, the phrase to him, In you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. All of the stuff that the scriptures are speaking about are culminating in this one. Why? Because this is what the Bible was about. Take a look at Isaiah 53. That's just one small thing. In Isaiah 53, verses 1 to 3, we read about his rejection. 
He grew up before him, before God, like a tender plant. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Why? He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. The rabbis refer to this phrase over and over again. And look at this phrase. He says in verse 1, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Here's something I learned for the very first time. Check this out. Look at chapter 40, verse 10. In chapter 40, verse 10, it says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Then if you turn over to Isaiah chapter 51, take a look at chapter 51, verse 5. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. Oh, excuse me, that was 50. 51 verse 5, my righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arm will judge the people. And then if you look at chapter 51 verse 9, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old. Look at chapter 52 verse 10. It says, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And in Isaiah 53, we now find out who this arm of the Lord is. It is that one who is exalted. It's that one who experiences humiliation. It's that one who provides atonement. That one who would be rejected by his own people. Look at Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. We read of his sufferings in our behalf. And so in verse 4, surely he's borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. He, we thought he was stricken and smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. See, this can't be Israel because this is one who is suffering for Israel, for our sin, Isaiah says. He doesn't just say for my sin or their sin. He's saying he's suffering for our sin. Who is Isaiah's people for whom he's suffering? It's the Jewish people. This one is suffering for his people Israel. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Can't be Israel. It has to be the Messiah. It has to be someone else. But look at his sufferings. Look at what he is bearing in our behalf. Look at verses 7 through 9. How was he able to do this? Because he was able to be, allow himself to be humiliated. He was humble. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He did not open his mouth. Twice it will say that. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep before a shears is dumb, he opened not his mouth. The focus is his humiliation. He was willingly going. To the place of suffering. He not only took on our sins as a substitute, he willingly did this because he knew it was necessary in order to benefit us, in order to meet our need. Look at verses 10 through 12. It doesn't end there. Look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So who put the Lord to death? This argument, was it the Romans? Was it the Jews? Well, Isaiah 53 tells us it was the Lord that put him to death. It was the Lord that was pleased to bruise him. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. But here's the weird thing. He will see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. How is this possible? This one that's crushed, put to grief, bearing our sin, the one who would be cut off, Isaiah says. And yet right here, it tells us that he will prosper. 
The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he will see. How does one who is so suffered see anything? And how does he become satisfied? By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He will bear their iniquities. And look in verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. Because he poured out his soul to death. How does this individual get all this prosperity, all of this blessing when he's poured out his soul to death? He had to be raised. He had to be resurrected. He had to somehow come back to life. And that's what the new covenant scriptures, the Jewish writers are telling us of the Messiah of Israel. Now, we went through this so fast, you know, even though it's getting late. We went through this so fast. But is this not stirring on this night when we think of the atonement God has provided? That atonement was provided by Yeshua. The objective aspect of the atonement that is essential for atonement to be provided. There needs to be the objective, this is where we started, and there needs to be the subjective. God has provided the objective. Messiah has come. He's given us a life, a ransom for many, and the prophets told us who to look for so we wouldn't miss him. The subjective is what remains. How do we respond? Do we acknowledge him for who he is? And do we say, like Isaiah says here, who has believed our report? Who has believed our message that Messiah has come? And he's not only come, but he's done all of this for us. So I want to just take a moment as the worship team comes and before we receive an offering this evening, just to take a moment to pray and to ask the Lord to speak to us through these words that were shared this evening. For some, perhaps, I don't know, maybe you've never genuinely invited the Lord into your life. We all need to respond personally to what God has provided for us objectively. Some of us, of course, have responded in days gone by, in the past at some point. We've responded But now we need to determine to allow the righteousness of our Savior to manifest himself through us. We need to say, Lord, on this evening of Yom Kippur, take my life and make it yours. So let's pray. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.